0: Well, on the 12th of September in 2014, a large guesthouse of the Synagogue Church of All Nations in Lagos State, Nigeria, collapsed and killed at least 115 people. The senior pastor, a self-professed prophet named TB Joshua, claimed that it was caused by a jet hovering over the building. The coroner's investigation, however, found that the collapse was caused by several failures on the part of the builders to build according to the code. And some examples of the way they had failed included uh, using undersized beams, inadequately reinforced columns, and having an insufficient foundation. The building uh, was already being used, which is why there were so many people in it even though it didn't have a proper permit which was able to certify the soundness of the structure. Building codes exist because teams of engineers and architects have determined what is necessary in order for a building to be safe. That's why that we have them. And so when building codes are ignored, then the results can be catastrophic. In our passage this morning, Paul talks about building the church and it's worth us thinking as we consider what he says here in this passage, are we building God's church God's way? Or perhaps another way of putting it would be to say, are we building to God's code? Are we building to God's code? If we want to be used by God and be part of His work in building His church, then we need to make sure that we build by His code. And to ignore His code will lead to catastrophic results. And so we would do very well to pay attention to what God has given us in His Word here this morning, specifically in this passage. And so today I have three points for you that basically follow the passage along. And the first will set us up to understand how God has organized His work. The second will lay out a blueprint for this building work. And the third will serve as a solemn reminder to all of us. So, let's begin with our first point. And if you're taking notes, that is, God is everything, we are nothing. God is everything, we are nothing. Last week, we saw... Uh, in our passage there, how Paul was making a very clear point to the Corinthians. He was telling them that they are not spiritually mature, that they are spiritual babies. And in the sentence leading up to our passage this morning in verse 4, Paul says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And he's saying To them, this kind of division, this kind of boasting in in one teacher or another is wrong. And it makes you guys look just like everybody else. It makes you look like all the other Corinthians who do the same thing, who boast in these great speakers. And so here in our passage, Paul now goes on to explain exactly why it's not only a sinful thing to do that, but it's also a very silly thing. Read with me from verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe does the Lord assign to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And so Paul now asks them the question, he says, what are we? What are Apollos and me? He says, we're merely servants. And it would be silly for us to presume that we're anything more than that. God assigned that both of us would have different tasks among you, that I would preach the gospel, that Apollos would preach the gospel, and that he ordained that that you would come to believe through my ministry, says Paul, and that Apollos will continue to serve you in that. Paul planted, and that likely refers to this fact, that as an apostle, he he was going around and planting churches. And so he did that in Corinth and started the church. And then at some point, he he says, Apollos watered. That is likely referring to the fact that Apollos came to Corinth to teach the Corinthians, to continue to build them up and instruct them in the faith. But ultimately, Paul says... God was the one who gave the growth. God gave the growth. Now, I must confess, uh, I'm not much of a green thumb. Uh, I always feel sorry for any plants that are entrusted to my care, because more often than not, they just die. But the beauty of Darwin is that uh, as long as you have tropical plants, you don't actually have to do much. Uh, So, if it dies in the dry season, just wait for the wet season, and uh, before you know it, the rains come, hey presto, everything's alive. Before you know it, you can uh, start boasting about how good a gardener you are, which would be a ridiculous thing to do, wouldn't it? Imagine me, the horrendous horticulturalist that I am, talking myself up in the wet season about my ability to bring my garden back to life. When the reality is is that it was a combination of the sun the rain the fertile soil and the process of photosynthesis that actually made those plants grow well it would be just as ridiculous for me to take any credit for any spiritual growth that has occurred in your lives i can't make a plant grow any more than i can make a person grow spiritually I can do things that will help nourish a plant. I can feed it with the water that it needs. I can cultivate the soil around it to make sure it gets good nutrients. I can pray that God would have mercy on this poor plant that's in my care. I can prune its branches so that it grows. I can even sing to it on Sundays. But I'm ultimately not the cause of it increasing in health and vitality. In the same way, I can feed you with the life-giving water of the word that your soul needs. I can help cultivate an environment that will ensure that you get good spiritual nutrients. I can pray for the Spirit to graciously work in your life. I can help you prune sin out of your life that you may grow. And yes, I can even sing to you on Sundays. But I am ultimately not the cause of you increasing in spiritual health and vitality. Only God can do that. God is everything. We are nothing. I am merely a servant to the King, an instrument in His hands to bring about life and growth in His people. Now, I've mentioned myself specifically because in this passage, Paul is thinking specifically about pastors and teachers and I'm one of the elders uh, that has been appointed by Emmaus Road Christian Church. But of course, I'm not the only one. With this responsibility. Our church has also recognized and appointed Josh and Brayden and Roger as elders who also carry out this role of feeding and nurturing and discipling. Everything that I've just said applies to them as much as it applies to me, except maybe the singing part. (laughs) I mean, they can still sing to you, but it just, you know. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And our prayer as elders is that God would use us to bring about that growth in your lives. Our hope is that we might be able to see you continue to mature in your faith, to mature in your walk with Him, to grow in greater love for God and in holiness, so that you might be presented mature in Christ on the day when you meet Him. Our elders have and continue to deliberately organize their lives around being able to do this as effectively as we possibly can. Whether that means making changes to our jobs or creating space in our weeks or sacrificing free time in order that we can disciple members, in order that we can feed you the Word of God. We do it all joyfully, knowing that we labor for your good and for God's glory. We do it, as verse 8 says, to receive our wages according to our labor, which we'll get to in the next point. And we do it because you are God's field. We delight to be working in God's field because we are co-workers in His service. Let's read from verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The ESV here uh, translates the Greek as barely as possible, Uh, but another grammatically correct and more likely understanding of what Paul is actually getting at is that the workers belong to God. He and Apollos are co-workers who work in God's service. And that flows with the whole context of of what Paul's just been saying, doesn't it? He's just been emphasizing how God's workers have no reason to boast because they're not the source of any kind of growth in the church. And so he finishes this paragraph by emphasizing that not only the workers are his, but even the people that they are ministering to are his. The workers are his. The field is his. The building is his. The pastors are his, and the church is his. Jesus doesn't say to Peter in Matthew 16:18, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build your church. No, he doesn't say that, nor does he say, on this rock, you will build my church. And no, he also doesn't say, on this rock, you will build your church. No, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We are God's workers in God's field, building God's building. All are His, and all the work that happens is His. We simply have the enormous privilege of being a part of it. And that's why we praise God. That's why I say, praise God. Whenever I hear from uh, you about the things that God is teaching you, about the things that He's doing in your life, even if it's something that has come about from something that I've said or something that I've done, I say praise God because He is the one who deserves the praise for such work. Praise God isn't just a throwaway line that Christians say because we've become fluent in Christianese. Or at the very least, that's, it shouldn't be. We say praise God because we give glory and thanks to the one who is bringing about such growth and sanctification in our lives. Who cares which instrument God has used to bring that about? I mean, for a pastor to get so concerned about such bragging rights would would not only be dumb, it would also show that he clearly has missed and cannot, does not, has not grasped the point of what Paul is saying. That's why we as a church need to keep reminding our pastors that all glory goes to God and that we are mere servants. Pride always lurks near the surface for any leader. And leaders in the church are no exception. And so our elders must be constantly reminding ourselves and be, re- be reminded by you to remain humble. I'm convinced that the the boasting of pastors in their gifts or the size or the influence of their church, as well as the many moral failures of many pastors, are due in large part to them forgetting this truth and thinking of themselves as something special, of pride rising and growing in their own hearts. They've forgotten that they're just workers in God's field. For my brothers who are aspiring to be elders, what you desire is a good thing. But heed this warning. Don't even for a moment think that any church you serve is yours. May God keep us and our elders from such self-reliance and self-inflation. Now, of course, be thankful For the men that God has placed in your life, who are there to serve you, to to help you, to see you grow and mature. Be thankful, pray for them as they shepherd you, as they disciple you. But ultimately, let us all glorify God, from whom all growth comes. He is the sun, He is the rain, He is the photosynthesis. We are God's workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And with that little shift in metaphor, Paul shifts the illustrative image into the next section. So I will also shift to point two. Build on Jesus, build to last. Build on Jesus, build to last. Let's read from verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let, let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Firstly, just take note once again of how God-oriented this sentence is. Right from the beginning, Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me. You notice that? He prefaces what he's about to say next regarding his labors by saying that all of it has come by way of the grace of God that was given to him. He didn't earn it. It's not his. It came to him by the grace of God. And that's why Christians have another phrase, which can become just another throwaway line if we're not careful by grace. By grace. All our labors and growth in spiritual maturity is a work of grace. Everything we do, everything we can be, is all by grace. And that's why we talk about grace so much. That's why we sing about amazing grace. Because grace is not only the very thing that saves us it's not only the very thing that justifies us. It's not, the, it's not only the very thing that enables us to turn from sin and believe in Him. Grace is also the very thing that continues to sanctify us, the very thing that enables us to labor for Him, the very thing that makes it possible for us to endure. God, in His grace, stoops down to save us. And then, in His grace, He powerfully works in and through us, to continue to make us more and more like Christ. And so we say, by grace. As Paul says later in this letter, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And what does Paul do according to the grace God gave him? What does the rest of verse 10 say in our passage? He says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Paul, being an apostle and being the one who planted the church, is able to say that he laid the foundation of the church as one with masterful skill. Now, seeing as I've just spent uh, quite some time talking about how pastors shouldn't be boasting, and knowing how us Australians love to cut down tall poppies, let me just clarify something here about what Paul is saying. Paul isn't boasting in in his ability, okay? The opposite of pride isn't denying that God has given you gifts or abilities or skills. And Paul has already, as we've just seen, said that it's because of God's grace. He doesn't think that he's something special, that he's earned his way, that he's a self-made man. His language here is really just setting up the imagery of what he's about to go into, that's why he talks about being a skilled master builder laying the foundation but you know even if he is speaking about his own ability about how good he is he wouldn't be wrong (laughs) if you've read his letters you'll you know that he's clearly very skilled in teaching the word in knowing the gospel in being able to instruct others in it he's simply stating a fact and so like a skilled master builder he says i've laid a foundation and now that he's left corinth others are in place and tasked with continuing to build on the foundation he has laid, those who are now the pastors, the elders, the leaders in the church. As you may know, foundations are absolutely critical to whether a building will continue to stand or not. If you have a weak foundation, you're going to have problems. If you have a strong foundation, then your building is going to stay up. Now, we know all about this in Darwin, don't we? Given the history and the likelihood of future cyclones, the NT government has established a code to make sure that all buildings remain standing if a Cat 5 cyclone comes through. And that, a crucial component of that code is a solid foundation. When those 200 kilometers per hour plus winds are pounding against your building, whatever it is that you're bunkering down in, you wanna make sure that that's attached to something solid. I mean, you don't want it to be just built on dust or a foundation that's only like five centimeters deep. You want it to be solid and immovable so that your building also doesn't move. And Paul is saying that he's laid that foundation for the church. And what is that foundation? Well, let's read on from verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. No one can lay any other foundation except Jesus Christ. What does Paul mean by the foundation being Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing that we can say is that clearly he's not talking about Jesus' physical body. Apart from the fact that it's been resurrected, uh, he'll go on to clarify the fact that the church is not a physical building. So, he's clearly not saying, hey, put Jesus in your foundation. Or could it be that he's talking about the fact that Jesus started the church? He was the first one to, to create it. Well, that seems unlikely too, seeing as Paul is saying that he's the one who laid the foundation, that Paul laid it for the church of Corinth. It seems clear from the context, and as we've seen over the last few weeks about how true wisdom is found in the gospel, that Paul is clearly talking here about the message and the news of Jesus Christ the good news of the gospel. The good news that Jesus, one of the three members of the triune Godhead, came to earth as a man to take on our sin by receiving the penalty of God's wrath for it on the cross. So that every person who turns from their sin, who turns and and turns away from worshipping the idols and the gods of this world, to believe in Him and to worship Him, might be saved from the penalty of their sin. When Paul says that the foundation is Jesus Christ, he's referring to this good news, to this gospel message. And if you're here this morning and you haven't actually confessed your sin to Him, if you haven't made Jesus the foundation of your life, if He isn't your Lord and Savior, then you need to turn away from building your life on anything else and start building it on Him today. Because that is what the Christian faith is all about. And consequently, that is what the church is all about. That's why Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, (coughs) that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the foundation. And you can't build the church on anything else. That's why Paul says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. Because if you try to lay a different foundation, then you're no longer building a church. Your building is something else entirely. If your church is built on a charismatic leader, it's not a church. If your church is built on signs, miracles and wonders, then it's not a church. If your church is built on missional zeal, then it's not a church. If your church is built on works of justice, then it's not a church. These and so many others are flimsy foundations. The foundation of the church must be the gospel. Because that's how God has designed it. That is His building code. And so we must build to His code. That's why our church covenant here at Emmaus Road Christian Church opens with these words. We trust that we have been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Before we go on to say anything else in our covenant about how we commit to one another, we recognize that all of that is only possible because of the gospel. We recognize that the foundation of the church, of all Christian living, is the gospel. That's why our statement of faith also spends a whole paragraph summarizing the gospel before it then goes on to talk about specific articles of belief. If we want to build to God's code, we need to start with the right foundation, with the gospel. But it doesn't stop there does it that's not where Paul stops our statement of faith goes on to say many more things our church covenant goes on to say more things and so does our work in building up God's church let's read on from verse 12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold silver precious stones wood hay straw each one's work will become manifest The first thing to say about this passage is that Paul says that if anyone builds on the foundation. Now in the context uh, it's clear that Paul is talking about pastors and teachers as we've already established. The anyone here is fairly obviously aimed at the leaders of the Corinthian church who are leading them in these bad and wrong directions. And that's why, so far, the majority of my emphasis, what I've been talking about, has been on the responsibility of elders and pastors who are shepherding and teaching the church. That's why we read out the verses that we read out earlier from James 3.1 and Hebrews 13.17. They make it clear that pastors should take on this role with an understanding of its depth. But there is also a sense in which this really does apply to anyone. As Congregationalists, we believe that every member of the church has a responsibility to tend to the building of the church. That's Peter's point in his letter where he describes members of the church as living stones in 1 Peter 2 verses 4 to 5. And so, even though there is a weightier responsibility for pastors here, even though we are given a greater responsibility and therefore will be judged more greatly, don't think that you have no role to play in this if you're not a pastor or an elder. You are also tasked with the building up of the church and with the discipling of others. And so as we work our way through this section, just bear that in mind. Remember that. And Paul goes on in verse 12 to describe the kind of building materials that last. Gold, silver, precious stones. All things that he says that will stand the test of fire. And he contrasts them with wood, hay and straw, materials that we all know and that's the image that Paul wants us to have the day that he talks about refers to in verse 13 the day of judgment the day of the second coming of Jesus to the earth where he will separate the sheep from the goats where he will judge everyone according to what they've done primarily according to whether they've chosen to repent from their sin and put their trust in him and believe in him It's quite possible that Paul here actually has Malachi chapter 3 verses 2 to 3 in his mind as he writes this, which says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord." On that day, Paul says, on that day of judgment, the quality of all workers' work will be revealed. And it will show whether it was built to last or whether it was built to burn. Are we building something that will last or something that will burn? One of the unique things about Christians is that the end point of everything we are building towards goes far beyond this life. Now, some people might say, well, that's what I'm seeking to do too. I'm going to build something that's going to last for generations. There's an author named uh, Jim Collins. He's a researcher. He wrote a book uh, a couple of decades ago called Built to Last, where he studied the world's most successful companies at the time and wanted to find what the common traits were between them that enabled them to outlast all the other companies and just continue to grow. And many such companies these days will also talk about, you know, how they're seeking to build a better world, tackling things like climate change so that our kids and our grandkids can inherit a a healthy earth. I had exactly this conversation with an older gentleman on my morning walk the other week. He was saying that he's recently become passionate about climate change because he wants his kids and his grandkids To inherit a better world now that's certainly admirable and to some degree that's a good thing but ultimately even though that perspective might sound like it's taking a long-term view as Christians we actually respond by saying no it's not long-term enough you're stopping too short we need to go beyond the next 10 years we need to go beyond the next hundred years the next thousand years The next 10,000 years, however long it might be before Jesus comes back again, we need to realize that what we're aiming for is eternity, is forever. We're not building something that, that will simply have physical endurance for many decades or generations. We're building for something that will last in eternity. And that's why a pastor's main responsibility always must be the preaching of the word. Always. Because if we want to build anything that's going to last, if we want to build anything that is going to be of any value in eternity, then it must be built on the foundation of the gospel and built with the word of God that has been given to us by him. To build according to God's wisdom and to build according not to man's wisdom is to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. To build according to God's code is to build according to God's word. Or you could say it the other way. To build according to God's word is to build according to God's code. And to do so, as verse 14 says, is to build with the view towards receiving a reward from the Lord. As he says, as labors, as pastors, as, as workers. We build to receive a reward. Now, this is a tricky verse to understand uh, because it's difficult to know exactly what Paul's referring to when he speaks of a reward. But I think there is probably a helpful parallel in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 to 20, when Paul says this, For what is our hope or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming, at the day. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. What's the reward that God's labourers receive? It's the joy of seeing those they've taught, those they've discipled, those they've disciplined, those they've prayed with, those they've cared for and shepherded, all standing with them on that day. The joy of seeing the saints in our church grow and live a life that is pleasing to Him. To live a life where they persevere in the faith till the end. By His grace and for His glory. Paul reminds the Corinthians that pastors and leaders are to remember that we don't work to build empires here on earth. We don't work to build organizations that might last a few generations. We work to receive an eternal reward. Those who don't do that and instead build for something that they can boast in now, Well, such workers, such pastors, even though they might be saved, will have nothing to show for their life's labours. What does verse 15 say? If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Uh, No, this isn't talking about purgatory just in case you have a conversation with a Roman Catholic friend. Paul's point here is that every pastor should consider this warning with sober judgment. Take care how you build. Take care with what you're building. Because what you are doing will eventually be judged by God and will be tested to see whether it was of any eternal value. This certainly strikes fear into my heart. I mean, I already approached the role of pastor with some trepidation based on the passages from James and Hebrews that we read out earlier. But as I've I've reflected on this over the last week, on this passage, it just makes me even more fearful. (laughs) It serves to press me deeper into ensuring that by grace I'm building with the right materials, that my foundation is the gospel, that I seek to go even deeper into the word to know it, to understand it, to meditate in it, to soak in it, that my heart is in the right place, that I confess my sin before God, that I fix my eyes on Jesus. Pray for us. (laughs) Pray for your pastors and keep holding us to biblical standards. And in your own life also, which is another topic but is tangentially related to what we're talking about. Build something that will last for eternity. Live a life so as to be able to stand on that day and glorify God with all that you have done with the days that he's given you. Seek to divvy up your time to maximize God's kingdom work in your life. Whether it be at home, at school, at university, at work, with your spare time. Live with the end in mind. By His grace, build His temple. Which brings us to our final point. God's holy temple, don't you dare destroy it. Let's read from verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, the language of temples for us uh, as 21st century Australians is largely one that doesn't resonate anymore. I mean, we might use it in a metaphorical way, you know, we'll refer to stadiums or shopping malls as the temples of our culture. But it doesn't really evoke the same kind of feeling as it would have for 1st century Jews or 1st century Corinthians. For the Jews, the temple back in Old Testament times was the centre of their worship, That was the place where God's manifest presence resided. I imagine that the way Muslims think about Mecca today would bear some similarities to how Jews felt about the temple. It is in that special place where God's manifest presence dwells. In Corinth, there were dozens of temples around to all sorts of different gods. And so, they also would have been familiar with associating the word temple with a place of reverence and the presence of a God. And so, when Paul uses the word temple here, that's the kind of feeling and emotion that he would be arousing. And in that context, you can just imagine how this statement would have landed. Now it's worth noting here that the "you" is plural, not singular. That is sadly one of the worst things about the English language, that it doesn't distinguish the two. It's plural, so he's not talking about individuals. Sometimes people confuse this point with what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, where he's talking about uh, the te- our bodies being temples. But you see, the point that Paul is making there is completely different to the point he's making here. In chapter 6, Paul is talking about sexual immorality and charging the Corinthians to remain pure. Whereas in chapter 3, in our passage, he is making a theological point. He's saying that the temple of God, the place where He dwells, the place that has been sanctified and set apart for Him, the place that shows off His glory to the watching world, that place is no longer a place. It no longer has geographic coordinates that you can plug into your phone and go to. That place is no longer the temple. That place is now a people. It's us. God's temple is holy, Paul says in verse 17, and you, plural, are that temple. What a phenomenal truth. (laughs) We, His people, sanctified by the blood of Jesus, gathered as His church, we are the place that God has marked to be a witness to the world. We are the place that God wants others to go to if they want to know what God is like. What a gigantic, awesome, and humbling truth. Yes, the church is still being sanctified. Yes, we're not perfect yet. But we have been made holy by His grace, by (laughs) Jesus' atoning death on the cross for our sin. And that sets us apart. Do you realize that you are God's treasured possession? Do you realize that you're part of a people that God has made holy and set aside for Himself? A people that His one and only Son went to the cross for? The one who received the justice, the right penalty of God's wrath for our sin? On the cross. You see, when you grasp that, you start to realise how important it is to be a member of a church. Our church has talked a bit about membership over the last twelve months, and this is part of the reason why. We're not just trying to create some kind of club with, you know, rules and perks and membership fees. We need to grasp that when we talk about church membership, we are talking about being a part of this gathering, which is God's holy temple. You know, the alternative is to keep seeing church as just the weekly religious pick-me-up. Pick the alternative is to think of church as, as just the place where you go in order to you know, be able to get some good religious talk and have some great friends who are moral people. Is that how you think of church? Because I can guarantee you that unless you grasp how God sees His church, that you will too easily slide into that mentality, that church exists to make your life better or to provide you with a solid group of good friends or to help you, you know, keep your spiritual tank full. Now those, those are good things. But they are side benefits at best. You, plural, are God's holy temple. What a sobering truth. And such a sobering truth is matched by an equally sobering warning. Once again, as we've talked about, Paul has in mind here pastors and teachers, but... This applies just as much to any of us. Let's read the start of verse 17 again. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. In verse 15, we saw Paul give a warning to the pastor who is still a Christian, but hasn't built with enduring materials. That pastor is still saved. He is Still a Christian, even though his life's work has just been burnt up by the fire of judgment. Here, Paul issues an even sterner warning to the one who has gone too far. Here, he warns the pastor who has removed the foundation from the church. The pastor who has lost himself in the wisdom of the world. Who has said that the Bible is merely a human book and isn't the very word of God who has said that the things we've decided and the things that we want and the way we want to define ourselves, that trumps anything, that whatever the Bible says. Who has said that because God is love, everyone is going to heaven because that's what a loving God would do. Surely He's not a God who would punish or be a God of wrath. That pastor, that teacher, that person, will experience the same end as the one who rejects and shakes his fist at God. They will be destroyed. Friends, hear clearly this warning today. Tremble in fear before the holy God. And by his grace, turn to him in repentance and faith. Do you see why this work is so crucial? Do you see why Paul exhorts pastors everywhere to make sure that they build on the foundation of Jesus Christ and why he urges them to build using materials that can withstand the fire of judgment? Because they are building the temple. And the temple is holy. This imagery that Paul has used is reminiscent of the building materials that are described in the books of Chronicles and Kings, where they build the temple. It all points to this fact that the church, this gathering, this people is God's holy temple. The things that we do here, the singing, the reading, the preaching of the word, the administering of the Lord's Supper and baptism, the encouraging, the spurring on of one another, they're not just things we do because we want to have a great Christian club here in Darwin. These aren't just religious traditions that have been passed down onto us so that we can have a warm and fuzzy church. Right here, wherever this local church is gathered with its members, here is the temple of God. Here is his holy temple. We are the very place that God has identified with his name, with his reputation. We are the very place that he has given for his spirit to dwell. Can you see that? Do you know that? What an incredible truth. Brothers and sisters, don't ever take lightly the fact that you are God's temple. He has made you righteous by His grace. And now He calls you to live in righteous devotion to Him by the power of His Spirit. Live and work, not for the destruction, but for the building up of God's church. And as you do, give glory to the one who makes it all possible. I mentioned at the beginning that T.B. Joshua's church built a guest house and used it that wasn't built to code. Well, the even sadder and more tragic truth is that the church itself doesn't show any promising signs of being built on the right foundation. Now, only God knows whether TB Joshua is one whose work will survive or one whose work will burn up or whether he is one who will be destroyed. But when he claims to speak for God and predicts that Hillary Clinton will win the 2016 election and that coronavirus will disappear on the 27th of March this year. And when his whole ministry is based not on the word of God, but on his so-called prophetic gifting, then I become genuinely fearful for his soul. We are God's field. We are God's building. We are God's holy temple. And God has given His church His workers so that they might carefully build according to His wisdom. By God's grace, we toil, laboring to build something that outlasts the earth. On the foundation of the gospel, that will withstand the fire of judgment. We toil and we labor so that we may stand in worship together with you, hand in hand, on the day when Jesus comes again. And we continue to return to his building code, to his word, and ask that by his spirit, we might build something of eternal value. Pray for and encourage your pastors as we labor for you by His grace, empowered by His Spirit, for His glory. Because God has built, He is building, and He will build His church. It is His holy temple. And as living stones in that temple, join them. Join us in that work. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and glorify you for this solemn reminder. God you alone are holy. And because of your great. Love and grace, you have made a way for us to also be made holy. We thank you and praise you for Jesus who has done that and achieved that and accomplished that on the cross. We pray, Father, for our pastors. We ask that you would Keep reminding us and enabling us, by your grace, to take care how we build. And Father, we pray that we may all look forward to that day where we may stand in worship of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, of the great high priest, Worshipping him together for eternity. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.